3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Uh, good morning. It is Monday the 10th of January, not like last week where I've already launched us into June. My name's Evan Wallace. This is 3CR Monday Breakfast and in the studio it's great to have Peyton back. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Evan. Happy New Year, everyone. This is wonderful that you're here and how's your New Year started? Well, it started off fairly comfortably. It's been a really nice time just to actually take a break from everything, put everything on hold. That's kind of, that's been my main, my main focus, I think, is just taking a bit of a rest. How's yours been? It's been good too. It's also had a similar feel. I don't feel as though the accelerator has gone completely on in that first week of the year. So time to just unwind, time to do a bit of reading, a lot of fitness as well over Mm -hmm. the first week. So that's been good. I suppose there's quite a few people in that category as well too, Mm. trying to press the reset button or the accelerator on um, fitness plans for the year. But that's been been really great too. Um, Things been cancelled, left, right and centre. I was supposed to see Moulin Rouge on the weekend. I was really, really looking forward to that. But like so many events right now, it's just the time of uncertainty keeps rolling along. Absolutely. I actually saw Moulin Moulin Rouge a few months ago uh, for my mum's birthday. So if you want, later on, I'll do, I'll, I could do a bit, bit of a presentation for you, like my interpretation <laughs> of Moulin Rouge. <laughs> that sounds really, really good. And what also sounds good too is the range of guests that you'll be hearing on today's Monday Breakfast Show on 3CR. So first up, we have Felicity from King Lake Friends of the Forest. Absolutely, yeah. So Felicity will be on to talk about the plight of the greater gliders, which are a tiny mammal uh, that live on the east coast of so-called Australia, and they've been uh, affected by logging. So we'll be hearing from the campaign to save them shortly. Oh, they're incredible marsupials, and there are a lot of environmental groups out there that are doing some essential work to make sure that there's awareness around how precarious their habitat is and looking forward to hearing from Steph a lot on that front. Uh, So not Steph, that's Steph who's coming up after Felicity. Steph is going to be our next guest and she's from the National Gallery of Victoria and she'll be talking us through how uh, the summer programming at the NGV Pretty exciting events uh, with a strong crossover connection with art from Arnhem Land and different First Nation cultures. So looking forward to to chatting with her. And then in the second hour, we'll be joined by Julianne Lamont from ANU on the continuing struggles that study of humanities and in particular literature is facing in light of the federal government's change of direction on Australian Research Council funding And then to wrap it up, we'll have Sarah McLean from La Trobe University talking um, talking with us about some interesting trends in youth drinking habits. So 
stacked show. A lot of guests who are joining us. Lots of good music. We're going to have John Teske and Ash Grunwald, playwright, John Hyatt, Corey Henry and the Funk Apostles. But up first is Eilish Gilligan. Eilish Gilligan, yes. So she is a local Melbourne musician. She's also, I think, the partner of somebody I follow on Twitter. And she has just released an EP and this single is called Up All Night. I've been here before Making up my mind Halfway out the door Washing on the line Group chat is a strobe light There's always things to do Big call but I just might Forget I'm not with you I'm better than before Like 85% We know bushfires can be devastating, that they change direction in seconds and move faster than anyone can run. But extreme fire danger days are rare, so before you travel, check the fire danger rating. And if it's extreme or above, don't travel to those areas. If you're already there, leave. How well do you know fire? Plan, act, survive. Go to emergency.vig.gov.au. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. A 3CR supporter. This is 3CR. It's Monday morning. It is 7.07am. You just heard Eilish Gilligan with Up All Night. Really fun, bouncy tune. Good way to get us going on a Monday morning for a week. A lot of people might be starting work again for the week if they've had a, a week off. And I think it's always good to sort of have something to, to bounce around to, to, to get you going. For you, Caitlin, is, is, do you have a routine at all when, when you're needing to 
yeah, I suppose sink into a new project, whether it's writing your PhD, whether it's <laughs> uh, real, when you're needing a lot of energy, what works for you? So maybe a few months ago, my partner and I started doing, um, this is going to sound, I don't want this to sound too Joe Rogan, but we started doing like a little bit of cold water in the shower in the morning and uh -huh. it works it's so irritating how well it works <laughs> in terms of like waking you up and then when you get out the shower you feel warm because the because of the cold water so that's that for some reason and i i hate that it works so well because <laughs> i don't want to sound too much like someone on some bro heavy podcast but it really helps get me going and like it helps my brain switch on and then the other thing is a strong cup of coffee a and cup of coffee. yeah it's like my one vice and i will ne i will not give <laughs> it's it up it's not a bad vice I... if it's just one one cup of coffee exactly you're going pretty well i think maybe there's a few more question marks about the cold water showers than i know else. i know it's uh it's almost humiliating i think and i hate that i've admitted it on live radio but here we are no i know exactly what you mean about the importance of ducking in the shower i must admit that mine aren't cold but uh, <laughs> I do know how good it is just to be able to have a bit of water against the back of the neck and what sort of difference that can make even mm. if it's just for, for one minute mm -hmm. it's all in the mind but it seems to be a really good key to getting the system and getting the body going and I'm like you that I'm going to have a much better day if before I do anything before I get underway with anything I uh, take off off to up the street buy a coffee let it sit and then let the thoughts roll around and yeah, then I'm going pretty well. If I can play some music on return to it, it's the beauty of being able to do so much work from home as well mm. these days, then that generally makes for, for a pretty good morning. And talking about working from home, it looks as though Melbourne, Australia, Victoria, mm. probably that will be a, a big part of, of life for the next number of months. So state government yet to formally issue a work from home order. Restrictions, though, coming in left, right and centre with density quotients being reintroduced with changes to elective surgery arrangements. Um, with now, since we last talked, I think mm. that a lot were on air together, that um, masks are in abundance and people are wearing it left, right and centre, even outside and out and about again to, to look after their own health um, and skyrocketing case numbers. Absolutely. It really feels, I think, like a return to where we were in March 2020. If you can cast your mind back 4,000 years to how that, you know, that, that's how long it felt, I think. But um, when there's this real emphasis on personal responsibility there's not a strict lockdown that's coming from a that is that's being mandated but people are following their the, the rules in the in a way that makes them feel safe and there's a real big push and I think it's so important that we are aware that when we talk about this virus getting everybody there are there's a huge number of people in the population who are particularly vulnerable to excuse me to it and that the measures that we're all adopting like wearing masks working from home cancelling events they're actually really going to protect those people who are most vulnerable and especially there is there's I don't know if there's any government support anymore especially like financial for those who are you know unable to go to work or don't feel safe at work because of the uh, the lack of restrictions. I don't know if you have any more knowledge about that, Evan. No, no financial assistance uh, mm. that's in place. And 
we are seeing that reality though of mm. businesses being forced to close because as you say, there are those safety concerns, but also just the reality that so many people are contracting coronavirus that totally. you have left, right and centre across all sorts of different employers and different businesses mm. and different um, venues. You'll see staff members who are having to isolate because they're close contact or they've uh, mm -hmm. unfortunately contracted coronavirus. And it means that uh, everywhere across the the state everywhere really now across the country with the exception of western australia you can't plan but also at the same time too there's as you were saying there is that risk around mm, what does it mean for employees livelihoods what does it mean for viability of businesses when um folk are having to isolate but there isn't that backup and there isn't that assistance and we know across the world that um there are programs in place to be able to support those businesses that have found themselves in um, restrained settings as a result of the Omicron variant. And I wonder how long it will be until that starts to feature as a rallying call here in Australia. Right now, it does feel as though that main focus is just on getting the testing arrangements right, though. <laughs> oh, that would be nice, wouldn't it? If we could get that non I don't know how to describe nonsense it. It's nonsense kerfuffle. <laughs> I don't even know. It's a really difficult time, I think. And um, I don't know about you, but I am basically avoiding going out as much as possible until I've got my booster. And that means yeah, cancelling plans with friends that are visiting, um, not seeing my mum. You know, like there's there, there are sort of sacrifices, I think, that lots of people are making in order to try, to try and stop the spread and I think um, I heard someone say yesterday that you know we're seeing now why it's so important to flatten the curve yeah and that flattening the curve really does work and lockdowns as frustrating and awful as they felt at the time they they save people's lives and that's the really the main thing that we have to be doing at the moment is looking after those who are particularly vulnerable to the virus through no you know obviously no fault nobody's at fault really when it comes to this thing it's it's totally out of anyone's hands absolutely i i think that it's not a blame exercise at all mm. and what's happened now is just mm, the situation forcing some really open honest communication between friends between families around what individuals feel comfortable with because it does very much vary uh, from one person to another and people have that risk and uncertainty of what would it mean if I had to isolate what would mm. it mean if all of a sudden I was in a position where hmm, okay I'm going to have to take myself out of action for a week on Friday night um, my girlfriend and I had had a, a few sore well had a sore throat throughout the week but negative tests so all fine feeling pretty healthy otherwise running mm. feeling good um, but that was something that you just need to communicate to friends to make sure that they know that um, there's potentially a cloud hanging over um, uh, the head of the situation and um, yeah and then Friday night didn't happen that was absolutely fair I think um, these friends had to take a the, the ferry the next day to Tasmania and they would have to take a, a test on arrival or just beforehand and just wanting to make sure a bit like you with your run yeah up, uh, <laughs> that you're fit and firing and ready to go on to the things that we enjoy doing well that's it I mean I'm extremely fortunate to be in a position where I can choose to do things like a 28 kilometer trail run so I'm looking, I'm really looking forward to that on Sunday and I've been training for a long time and I've been looking forward to it I got to do it it in January 2020 and then obviously last year 
with everything that happened, I just was absolutely not not fit enough to do it at the beginning of last year. So I'm, yeah, running up Arthur's seat on Sunday. Wow. Yeah, it's going to be pretty amazing. Um, but there's all sorts of, you know, measures that are being put in place for that event. You know, people starting in waves. Uh, there's going to be no sort of no cups available you everyone has to you has to everyone has to be sort of fairly self-sufficient which again puts the onus on individuals in some cases this is sort of a fairly reasonable expectation but i think in other areas you know we really need to be supporting each other yeah um but yeah it'd be nice to get out into the open air and off into the off into the bush a little bit what's the route again so it's from Dramana, right on the seafront, over Arthur's seat, down through Rosebud, and then I lose my sense of geography a little bit, <laughs> into the Mornington Peninsula National Park, over to Cape Shank. So oh. the lighthouse at Cape Shank is where we finish. A beautiful part of Victoria. And after this next song, we're going to be talking about one of those other pockets that uh, have incredible natural beauty in Victoria, and that is the Central Highlands and East Gippsland. So really looking forward to hearing from Felicity from King Lake Friends of the Forest. That's coming up next. It's 7.17am. Right now, though, it's John Teske and Ash Grunwald, two super blues artists from Australia. This is an album that they released two years ago, Push the Blues Away, an excellent collaboration. They're touring all sorts of different festivals over the next number of months. Uh, Ash Grunwald is a regular on the music circuit in Victoria and John Teske's doing, a, I think, a few also solo gigs as well too. This song, Thinking About Myself, I like it a lot. I think it has <clears throat> a good bit of drive, a good soul in there, good groove. This is 3CR Monday Breakfast. Coming up next, it's Felicity from King Lake Friends of the Forest. Still remain, you know. You are always 
3CR Monday Breakfast. You're here with Caitlin and Evan. That was John Teske and Ash Grunwald thinking about myself, which I think most of us do a little bit too much. Um, and right now we're going to talk to Felicity from King Lake Friends of the Forest about their campaign to save the greater gliders. So greater gliders are three species, if, you, if, you, if you're not already familiar, so they're three species of marsupials who live along the eastern seaboard of so-called Australia. They are the largest gliding mammal in the country and, are threatened species, and they are a threatened species according to the Victorian government. Their habitats can be especially affected by logging activities and King Lake Friends of the Forest and Environment East Gippsland have been fighting to save the homes of these animals. Just before Christmas, the Supreme Court of Victoria granted a reprieve to the threatened, glide, the threatened greater gliders living in the Central Highlands and East Gippsland State Forest. Here to tell us about the campaign so far and how you can get involved is Felicity from King Lake Friends of the Forest. Welcome to 3CR, Felicity. Oh, hello, Caitlin. Thank you so much for your interest in what we're doing. You are very welcome. We are so looking forward to hearing about this campaign. So could you start off by just telling us a little bit about the Greater Gliders? Um, well, yes. So the Greater Glider, as I've heard you just say, is um, Australia's largest gliding mammal. Um, the species we have in Victoria, the Southern Greater Glider, mm-hmm. um, it is the size of a large cat. Um, they reside in, um, they need large hollows in trees. Um, they have a very small home range. They are they are absolutely gorgeous. They're very fluffy. Um, they have a very very ridiculously long tail that looks like a feather boa. Mm-hmm. Um, they're quite remarkable. They their diet is interesting. It's closer to a koala than um, other types of possums. So they um, eat eucalyptus leaves. Um, they they're needing to have you know, reasonably quiet lives in order to digest their toxic diet. Mm. Um, the other interesting thing about the greater glider, um, it's considered a, an umbrella species, which essentially means that um, if a greater glider population is healthy, then it can be an indication that uh, the forest in which they're living is healthy. So mm-hmm. if um, greater gliders aren't doing well, it's an indication that, that other forest dwellers aren't doing well mm. um yeah so the, the greater glider then is a really good indication like you said of the health of a forest and so why that explains then why it's so important that we protect their 
habitats like the uh, East Gippsland and King Lake State Forests. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about what has been happening in some of those areas and why there has been this push to uh, to save those to, to save those environments? Um, yes, of course. So um, our group we're we're running this um, court case alongside Environment East Gippsland. Mm-hmm. So I'm on the King Lake Friends of the Forest Committee. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the one of the key threats to greater gliders and forest dwellers is logging um, and logging of critical habitat um, occurs daily um, throughout Victoria. Mm. Um, we're losing critical habitat because logging continues. Um, the southern greater glider um, faces so many threats um, that I probably, you know, well, I wouldn't have time to go into, but of course includes um, the threats posed by our warming climate. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, the uh, populations um, really suffered during the 2019-2020 fires. Yes. Um, so given the many, many threats um, posed, we are very keen that remaining habitat of these, these animals is protected in the Central Highlands region of Victoria and in East Gippsland. Um, These areas are a stronghold, I suppose, because there are large trees. Um, Greater gliders need large hollows um, Mm -hmm. because, you know, they're a reasonably large animal and the types of hollows that form in trees in which the greater gliders live are usually about, you know, at least 200 years old. So they they need old forests. Um, to in in order to survive well, mm. um, so what what we're doing with Environment East Gippsland, mm-hmm. and also I just need to acknowledge that we have extraordinarily passionate and amazing lawyers who are assisting us with this case. Um, we have launched legal proceedings against our state logging agency Vicforest mm-hmm. over the logging of habitat of this in, this. Um, important species Um, and so what we're trying to argue is that the surveying for greater gliders is inadequate in areas of forest that are earmarked for logging. Mm -hmm. Um, We're also arguing that um, that what should the gliders be found in areas so should they be surveyed that the trees in which they're seen plus um, surrounding habitat should be protected so what what currently happened, um, or what ha- you know certainly what happened before the injunctions were granted to us in late December, mm-hmm. if a greater glider was found in an area earmarked for logging, there was no you know the the tree in which they were found was um, not protected, nor was surrounding habitat. So we're we're arguing that the protections are inadequate, and certainly our expert witness, um, Dr. Grant. Wardle Johnson um, has um, stated that a greater glider in a logging coop is highly, highly likely to perish um, either at the time of the logging operation or certainly within um, three years uh, due to starvation or predation. So, of course, once you remove, um, you know, you clear a landscape, Mm. Um, then, you know, they're just far more exposed. Um, and then there are, of course, lots of other risks 
too. So we so so, um, so many risks there, Felicity. Hey, it's it's Evan here, and just wanted to say, first of all, really appreciate the the efforts that your organisation yeah. is putting in to to save mm -hmm. this incredible creature. It needs all the protection that it can get, and have a huge concern as to what future awaits the the greater glider. I know that there's been a push in, I suppose, over the last year to have the greater glider too recategorised as potentially being an endangered species, but. In your eyes and in your mind, do you think that the most effective way to support the greater glider would be just to speed up the phasing out of logging within native forests in Victoria? Would that be just the, the magic bullet to, to um, yes, ensuring um, the, the viability of the greater glider's home? Yes. Well, it is madness that we are logging critical habitat. The threats are, you know, enough. Yes, it, absolutely. We shouldn't be cutting down the trees in which they live. We are um, really, in our state, willfully um, killing crater gliders, essentially, um, by allowing these, you know, the, the threats are enough. Yes, logging, we believe that logging um, poses an unacceptable risk to this species. Absolutely. Um, and I think, if, you, like yeah. you said, if the, if the gliders are an indication of the health of the forest, then by removing their habitat and removing the species, essentially, mm -hmm. we're losing this really vital indication of the health of our environment, which creates, I suppose, more risks in the long term. Well, of course. And, you know, um, the forest and the region of the, the Central Highlands region includes really unique and diverse forests and are incredibly important um, for biodiversity and wide range of habitats for so many species. Um, and we need, you know, we need our forests to mitigate global heating. Mm. We need safe water, um, you know, our health as well. Yes. Um, so, and of course, you know, our ambition is not just to protect the greater gliders, but entire forest ecosystems, you know, all the beetles and the fungi and just all the magic that is within a forest. Absolutely, yeah. They're, they are really, truly magical places, I think, and especially mm. up in those areas like in the Highlands and uh, down mm. in East Gippsland, they're truly magical. So you said that you had a, a an injunction just before Christmas, and I know that there's not too much you can tell us about what's currently before the courts, but I was wondering okay. if you could give us a bit of a, uh, a background about or a bit more information about how listeners could get involved, how they can support the campaign, which is currently in need of fundraising. There's a there's a, a go there's a, a fundraising effort that we will share when we put Fantastic. up the links to the show. And mm -hmm. if could you tell us a little bit about that, please? Um, yeah, so, and thanks for mentioning our fundraising. Um, our groups are facing some fairly eye-watering court expenses, mm. um, and so we're really, really needing um, financial support. Um, but also other support is useful. Mm -hmm. um, we need people to um, know about what's happening um, in Victoria and understand this issue of logging and how it's um, threatening um, really everything that we know. Um, we have a website. Um, we encourage people to sign up to our mailing list so they can um, remain informed about this important case. Um, we also really want to encourage people to actually come up. Um, it depends where, where, you know, where people live, but we would be delighted to show people, um, introduce people to Greater Gliders. We run spot, spotlighting nights. These will be advertised on our website. 
um, looking a greater glider in the eye is one mm. way to, I mean, once you do that, um, you kind of, you feel it in your heart. So you know how important it is to protect um, the habitat. You just can't, you can't look up at a greater glider and then not do everything that you possibly can um, to ensure their, their survival. Um, so we really, we really, really want people to come out to the forest and have a look. Um, I'd, I'd love to come out to that as well too. I've only ever seen greater gliders in uh, sanctuaries or unfortunately dead ones in the middle of the day on a, a walk along the, um, on a hike in the central highlands. So going with people who know um, where to, to see the greater gliders I think mm. would, be, would be wonderful. Mm, please, please. We would be just thrilled to show anyone, to take anyone to an area where there are greater gliders. But because they, they're quite a sort of sedentary species and they have such a tiny home range, you know, what we kind of know where they are. Um, so, you know, they're not like um, birds. But yeah, yeah, anyway, they're large enough to see. Please come out and have a look. Um, That's a fantastic that- invitation. Yeah, no, please do. Anyone is just so welcome. We also really need people to be engaging with their local politicians around this issue. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, logging in Victoria, it's a, it's a state issue. Um, logging is exempt under sort of strange laws. I should say, in my opinion, strange laws. Logging is exempt from the federal environment laws. So it comes under um, state responsibility. So people really need to be engaging with their state MPs um, and uh, express their views about the need to protect um, forests, forest ecosystems and forest inhabitants. Um, So, yeah, and we have a trust account. We're needing to raise really a lot of money in a short space of time. COVID circumstances have made usual fundraising um, avenues pretty difficult. So mm. we really, <laughs> we're just needing as much support as possible. So please donate to us and also encourage everyone that you know um, who you know is in a position to, to support us. Yeah. Absolutely. And we've got that link. I've got it open right now and I will make sure that we, right. we put it on the show notes. So... Felicity, we're going to have to wrap up in a second, mm-hmm. but um, is there any, so there's the Chuff campaign, there's mm-hmm. speaking to or contacting local MPs about mm-hmm. the uh, the plight of the greater gliders and about logging in state mm-hmm. forests generally. And then yep. the final thing that you suggested was to come up and meet a greater glider face-to-face, have a chat yes. with them and... Mm. sort of understand their habitat and understand their uh, their way of life, I suppose, which I think mm. are three really important and um, uh, they're very accessible in some way. They're quite accessible, mm. those, those three different actions. So we're really grateful for your time. Is there anything else that you would like to tell us about the, the, about the campaign or about the gliders? Um, well, yeah, look, this is this is far from over. Mm. While the court granted sort of temporary injunctions in late December, um, there are um, hearings coming up. We really have a long way to go to argue our case mm-hmm. um, for this and other species. So, um, you know, please follow this effort. Yep. 
Absolutely. And it would be great to have you back on the show to talk about what happens in, I think, is it March that their next hearing will Mm -hmm. be? So, yeah, we'll have you back on the show definitely to talk about that, please. Yes, wonderful. Okay, thank you so much for your time, Felicity. It's been great to Uh, chat. Yeah, thanks so much, Caitlin. Okay, thank you. Bye. They really are incredible animals. I mean, if people aren't at all familiar with the greater gliders, well, I suppose one way that I like to think of them as being the, the cute gremlins in the gremlins films, so the mogwai, a little bit like that. They're you know, somewhere cross between a, a, a koala and a mogwai. And when you see, Aww. I've seen videos of them flying and in action, they're just majestic, beautiful um, and very, very cute animals too. I mean, animals don't need to be cute for them to be saved, no, but it does, it, does, it does help the, <laughs> uh, the campaign efforts, I suppose, if it's not a blobfish. It does. And, and just, I suppose, on that serious level, that, that sense of them being an umbrella species mm. is a really, really good piece of analysis that uh, Felicity was offering just then. Because we know that the Central Highlands and East Gippsland do face those threats. And there are all these... Mm, horribly geared rules and regulations that are still in place which lend uh, trees that do have hollows and that could support greater glider habitat being at risk and that's such a such a shame and it's 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 a tragedy really because this is an incredible ecosystem that we have just on the doorstep of melbourne and anything that we can do uh, to ensure that this wider ecosystem and the greater gliders that are um, part of it, we really wanted to do and and play that role here on 3CR. Absolutely. So if you missed the conversation with Felicity from King Lake Friends of the Forest, that will be available on our website after the end of the show about 9.30. And on when we put that up, I'll put the links to the Chuffed page, but also to the King Lake Friends of the Forest website, Twitter and Facebook, where listeners can go, you can go and have a look and see if when there are opportunities to go up and support the campaign in person to meet those greater gliders and to reach out to local MPs. Now, our next song has a bit of a connection to the Central Highlands. Yes, it does. So I came across this While I was doing some research for the show yesterday, I came across this song by a band of, I think they're no longer a band actually, but they are called Playwright and the song is called Animals Housed. And I read about the lead guitarist's parents very sadly um, passed away during the Black Saturday bushfires in Kinglake. And this song, Animals Housed, they filmed the music video at the site of the house and it's really, it's a really beautiful uh, video. It shows them sort of really celebrating the lives of these people. And I think that it shows the the really devastating impacts of fires and how much uh, they really do sort of force people to have to go through an, an enormous amount of trauma and processing uh, processing that and trying to heal from it. But it's a really beautiful song and a really beautiful video. So I thought we'd play it this morning. Here it is. It's Animals House by Playwright. This is 3CR Monday Breakfast with Evan and Caitlin. And coming up next is Steph Pullman from the National Gallery of Victoria. All these things that we said, I Tigers out of sight, you should know It doesn't wash away the stripes, no, no, no 
got something pretty good Yeah, I know I don't know what to do if I should Cause you've got plans, big ideas, nothing here Not much left to keep you here No, no, no Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. The three of us reckon that there's is the best. 
You're on 3CR Monday Breakfast. Uh, you're here with Evan and Caitlin. And just before we heard those announcements, you were listening to Animals Housed by Playwright. And before that, we heard from Felicity from King Lake Friends of the Forest. So up next, Evan, who are we speaking to next? <laughs> it's a real pleasure that we have Steph Pullman on the line. And Absolute pleasure because it's summertime in Melbourne and in summer amidst all of the uncertainty that we were talking about at the start of the show, there's still an incredible array of events and activities that we can enjoy. And for many of us, we're looking for events that are free. That's something that I definitely like to have an eye on when trying to source and think about ideas that could be good and ones that can be enjoyed with little ones, whether it's family, visiting friends. Well, one of the places that we can visit over this summer is the National Gallery of Victoria. And on the line is Steph Pullman. Steph, how are you doing? Hi, Evan. Hi, Caitlin. I'm good. How are you both? <laughs> really, really good. Now, the NGV Kids Summer Festival kicks off this Saturday, and it's promising artist-led activities, events, performances, and dance workshops. This must have been quite an effort to get this one off the ground. It has, but um, we've almost been doing our Kids Summer Festival for a decade now, so we're very practised in it, but um, each year we're learning more and more, and this year, um, after the last two years that we've had, we're especially excited to be able to present this program for families and children and teens. Um, so that's right, it's kicking off this Saturday. There's lots of things to do, and um, as you mentioned before, absolutely everything is free. Um, we're really excited because it's a great opportunity for us to welcome everyone into the gallery and a lot of the time when families are visiting for Kids Summer Festival, it's most likely their first time that they've been to the gallery. So it's a really good opportunity um, for us to showcase what's on offer and make the gallery a really welcoming place for everyone. And really bringing in all sorts of different forms of art of different creative mediums as well too and some great connections too with different first nations communities let's start with dance looks like there's going to be some great hip-hop over the week absolutely we've got um indigenous outreach projects we've got um l2r um they're both going to be doing hip-hop performances um and a bit of a dance workshop so Families of all ages and kids of all ages can come along and dance along, learn some new moves, um, practice all your moves before you're heading back to school after the summer break. Uh, we've also got kids' disco parties, which is going to be a bit of a dance rave for kids. Oh, cool. How do they look? Uh, well, they're doing lots of pop songs. They're actually teachers as well themselves, so they've kind of got this interesting um, mesh of careers going on, and um, they're going to be singing, uh, so they're going to be um, playing lots of family favourites and everyone's going to be dancing in the Great Hall under the stained glass ceiling at NGV International. Oh, that sounds good. Have you put any song requests in at all for the DJs there and any sort of um, planning to, to get a, a horde of kids jumping to bounce into any of your favourite songs there? <laughs> oh, what a there? great question. <laughs> I think for kids you can't really go past Baby Shark, can you? <laughs> oh, <gosh. laughs> no, that's true. It's, it sometimes pops into my head just randomly. I was at the petrol station the other day and it came in mm. for whatever reason and there aren't too many little young ones in, in associated with my life. So the fact that a song like Baby Shark can permeate through the consciousness that says a lot for the power of that piece of music. Um, and then going from, from music to arts and crafts, there's going to be a few opportunities for kids to get crafty with hat making and jewellery design. Tell us a bit more about this. 
Absolutely. So we um, work with um, Australian artists to create some art-making activities and it's um, for the festival and it's a really great way to sort of demystify what an artist is. Um, kids and families can learn directly from the artist. They can learn some um, techniques and some tips and see actually how artists um, experiment and make mistakes and learn from them. So it's a really great way to channel creativity and just have some fun together as a family. Um, so we've got Louise O'Brien from Architecture for Kids School. She's um, coming down from Sydney and she's going to be making some beautiful sculptural hats, um, which kids can also make and personalise. And it's going to be the perfect thing to wear out in the NGV garden next to um, the Architecture Commission, which this year is a giant pink pond. So the kids can do some making in the Great Hall and then head outside, see if their sun hats are nice and shady and test them out. Um, we've also got uh, Christy Dickinson, who is from House of Dizzy. She's a First Nations artist. She's going to be making some super-sized um, bracelets. So Christy's all about bling. She loves everything that's glitter and sparkly, and she's created these bracelets which um, children can personalise, put their own spin on it, and um, create their own um, their own thing as well. Fantastic. Um, and for teens, we've got a fashion styling workshop with Ori Indiana, who's worked with um, names like Baker Boy, and she's going to be giving the teens some... Um, industry expert tips and show them um, some different styling tips. They're going to be uh, creating a look for an imagined celebrity. This sounds like a very, very fun time. Now, also running alongside the um, festival is the Gecko and the Mermaid. So Jerk New, um, Yunupinu and her sister, and that's celebrating the culture and community of the Yolnu people of Arnhem Land in the Northern Territory, north of Darwin, through the work of different pioneering artists and sisters. It seems like mm. it's going to be a pretty special exhibition, this one. It is. So it's part of our annual um, kids program where we run two free exhibitions per year, especially for children. They're at MGV International. Um, and this one, there's lots of interactive games. You can explore the land and waterways um, of Yonu culture. You can learn some words in Yonu Martha, the language of the Yonu people. Um, you can learn about Yonu seasons and practice counting. And of course, you can also make some of your own art. Um, you can personalise some little mermaid dioramas and take them home and then continue your role play at home. Um, and then as part of um, the festival as well for this exhibition, we're also offering some relaxed sessions every weekday at the festival. And so they're um, opportunities for neurodiverse people, people with sensory sensitivities um, who may want to have a bit of a quieter um, experience of the exhibition. They can come in before hours and um, experience the exhibition when there's fewer numbers and there's a few modifications made as well. So it's a bit of a quieter experience. So That's what's going on this summer? Great to know. And just thinking a bit more about the art itself, I read mm. that the art was created using a combination of natural earth pigments and reclaimed toner ink from discarded printer cartridges. Is, mm. is that right? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Derek New actually uses um, the printer cartridge ink from inkjet printers. So when you go into the exhibition, um, especially in Bark Ladies, you'll see a lot of these vibrant sort of blues and pinks and turquoise colours coming through. And it's really interesting because when I first saw um, some of her works on Bark, I didn't... Um, Really, I didn't think that they were from a uh, printer um, ink and sort of until I, I knew about it. But then once you know, you start identifying, I guess, all of those colours, but they're beautiful and really vibrant. 
It sounds um, wonderful. Mm. Really looking forward to checking it out. And then for other listeners out there, if, if the NGV Kids Festival isn't quite their cup of tea, Friday nights at the NGV is a place where people might want to head. Yeah, it's absolutely. It's a um, really fun night. So Friday nights, there's uh, lots of DJ sets, um, there's specialty food and drinks throughout the gallery. Um, and in the garden, you can relax again by the architecture commission, the big pink pond, um, have a cocktail, have some champagne and get up late access to Bark Ladies and Chanel. Um, and then outside of Friday nights as well, we also have our extended hours throughout January. So you can pop into the gallery after work, um, listen to some DJ sets then as well, or uh, pop along to the Paris on Film cinema series where, where we're going to be screening um, free films um, inspired by French cinema. Absolutely wonderful. On the show today, Steph, we've been talking about things that we do to, to get ourselves going, especially when we have busy times or embarking upon projects. And you definitely have a, a busy week over the next week. What what are your clutches? So what do you turn to when you have a busy time? Is it a, is it a cold shower? Is it a cup of coffee? <laughs> is it um, a, a bike ride? What gets you going? What are you going to draw on over this next um, frenetic, fantastic week? Um, absolutely. Working out as much as I can um, is a great stress reliever but um, it's just so exciting to actually be back in the gallery again so I feel like that's kind of my escape as well Um, it's such a huge building and there's so much to see I actually really love strolling around um, the NGV garden on my lunch breaks seeing all the sculptures and um, they do an amazing job with the garden there as well and now that pond is there it's nice to kind of dip your feet in on the lunch break so there's lots of opportunities to have a bit of um, respite actually where I work so I'm very lucky. Uh, you are indeed. It is an wonderful. It's a wonderful building. It's a great part of Melbourne. It's a, a real institution and a place that's uh, there for all of us to be able to enjoy. And great to hear that there are so many excellent free events that are coming up over the next number of weeks. This is just uh, superb. Steph, thank you so much for chatting with us on 3CR Monday Breakfast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Brilliant. That was Steph Pullman there chatting with us about the NGV Kids Summer Festival and some of the other activities that are ahead over the next month. And I definitely need to check that one out. Absolutely. It sounds like there's so much going on. I've been looking forward to seeing the Bark Ladies exhibition ever since I heard about it. So I'm really, really excited. I actually went there a little while ago anticipating to see it and then it wasn't it wasn't quite open yet so I was a bit disappointed but I'm really looking forward to going now that it's actually open and I think I already have a little bit of jealousy about the kids disco that sounds like oh, a, a, 100%. Hoot, a real hoot but perhaps one song that they won't be playing at the kids disco is feels like rain by John Hyatt this is one of my favorite blues tunes it's a classic it's been covered by the likes of Buddy Guy and it does the rounds on different blues albums but this is the original from his album Slow Turning ah, it's evocative it gives you that sense of being in the oozy south of the USA it's a love song uh, it's some poetic lyrics in there and yeah one of my favourites this is 3CR Monday Breakfast with Evan and Caitlin Down here the river meets the sea In the sticky heat I feel you open up to me 
Oh, I love that song. It's John Hyatt with Feels Like Rain. It's Monday morning. It is 8am or thereabouts, 10 seconds to. You're listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast with Evan and Caitlin. On Monday Breakfast, we've been keeping a close eye on changes to rules associated with Australian Research Council funding. Last year, we brought attention to the proposed changes that will ultimately make it far more difficult for humanities-based research to be funded with a dramatic favouring of manufacturing-based proposals and those that are in the so-called national interests. And even before these changes are implemented, we're seeing the impact of this approach. On the line is Julianne Lamond, and she's a senior lecturer at the Australian National University. Last week, she published an excellent article in The Conversation highlighting the precarious position literary studies is facing with the government's current approach. Julianne, thanks so much for being with us on Monday 3CR Breakfast. Thanks so much for having me. In your article, you've drawn attention to six research teams being recommended for funding by the Australian Research Council experts, but only to be rejected or vetoed by Education Minister Stuart Robert, citing mm, that the applications didn't demonstrate value for taxpayers' money, nor did they contribute to the national interest in the minister's eyes. And four of those are in literary studies. You're obviously feeling pretty gutted and shattered by this intervention. Yeah, it's hard not to feel targeted as someone working in English or literary studies at the moment. You know, so few um, grants in our discipline are funded at all or approved for, for funding. And when um, when four of them are then rejected, it's, it seems that there is a, there is something going on with this government and the humanities and literary studies in particular. Yeah, yeah, it definitely lends itself towards that for sure. You've stated um, that the intervention shows a willful ignorance for the value that literature plays in Australian society, culture and the economy. Really powerful words. Tell us a little bit more about what you mean by this. Well, I think that um, that when um, when conservative politicians uh, target literary studies, they make it seem as though it's something that's a sort of elite ivory tower kind of occupation. And I feel that that's, that's a real disservice to, the, to Australians who read everywhere. Literary culture is everywhere in Australian daily life. And, um, and it's a big part of our economy as well. The publishing industry is a $1.5 billion industry at the moment. So it's a big part of our economy and it's a big part of people's daily lives. If you think about... All of the, especially if we think about kids and young people and the role that books play in helping form their identities and how they feel about themselves in the world, and also people being involved in things like book clubs, which are an incredible um, kind of technology for social inclusion and connection. That books provide um, provide a whole lot of different kinds of uses for Australians in their daily lives. And so I think in portraying literary studies as something that's not in the national interest, I think that that's really willfully ignoring all of these different uses of literature in our, in Australian life. And also to willfully ignoring the, the huge amount of work that goes into submitting an ARC grant. So thinking about the different proposals that were submitted, they've gone through an incredibly robust process. Can you tell us a little bit more about what this process looks like? I'm sure listeners will be really keen to understand the work that goes into actually getting to a point where it is recommended for funding by the council in the first place. 
Yeah, it's a huge amount of work. Um, so basically what happens is if you're a, um, an academic at the moment, you're expected to apply for ARC grants. So it's something that you're expected to do as part of your it's part of your job description, basically, is to apply for these grants. And that's often how people will fund a big research project that will make some significant advance in how we understand, um, understand the field. And so what you'll do is you'll write a proposal, you'll talk to a whole lot of people. Often they're a big team proposal with people across Australia, across the world, and you'll get internal reviews so people within your university will read it. Other lovely colleagues will read it just out of the goodness of their hearts and offer offer feedback, um, and then it will go through the process within the ARC where every... Um, every one of these applications and they're incredibly onerous they're about i think i think our last one was 70 pages when you made it into a pdf <laughs> they're a big they're a big application they include a detailed budget um and so on and so they will then go to um to detailed readers who are expert readers in the field and they'll often receive three or four reports so these are people who are right you know experts in that very specific area they'll read it then it will go to another committee um which will be a broader committee so there's one for the humanities and the creative arts they will then um they will then read it and discuss and assess and then it goes to another committee that talks about its eligibility um and then from that massive process 19% of the applications are approved for funding and then they go to the Minister for approval. And that process is normally, um, it's normally a case that the Minister approves all of the, all of the um, applications that have been suggested for funding because they have been, they've gone through this incredibly rigorous um, expert process. So that, that's what was quite unusual this year um, in getting some, having some of them vetoed at that very last step of the process. Thanks so much for, um, for for being on the show, Gillianne. This is this is Caitlin. Um, I'm just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the, the I guess the time scale because that sounds like a really lengthy, a very involved process. But I think it's really important to emphasise the amount of the just the, the the length of time that this process is happening over, and also that there are this is in addition to as as much as these applications are part of a job description. These are also in addition to teaching and research responsibilities that are separate from this application. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And especially in something like literary studies where the acceptance rate is very low, um, you're doing a lot of this work you know, with, with, a, with an acknowledgement that it's likely not to pay off. So, mm. so the, the um, applications are usually due in February or early February, which is a really difficult time, especially for people um, like me with caring responsibilities. So often you're working on these grant applications over the summer holidays, kids are home from, from, from school. Um, so that's a really, I think there's, a, there's an equity issue built into those deadlines, mm -hmm. those February deadlines. So often people will be working on it over their summer often they're working on it when they're on leave which they absolutely should not be doing and then you'll submit them in February and then often usually you won't hear back um, until October but this year there were significant delays for mm -hmm. a number of reasons and so we didn't hear back this year until Christmas Eve um, mm -hmm. which I think is devastating especially for people whose grants whose jobs depend on their grants you know so the people like postdoctoral researchers who the grant the grant really determines whether they're going to have a job next year or not so to not find that out until Christmas Eve was pretty devastating. Absolutely. I, um, I am also in the academy and I have seen the, the highs and the lows of this process, especially over the last 12 months and yeah, getting the results on Christmas Eve. I can imagine, I could see there were people I knew who didn't get funded and they, it was, it was devastating for them because they put in, you know, a year's worth of work and meetings and time and making oh, connections. And, yeah. you know, these, these projects are not, so they, these projects are, are in the national interest. Like you said, they are in the interest of making Australia, not just a, a country of manufacturing, but also of, 
of celebrating and recognizing the enormous contribution that we make in in an artistic in a literary in literary spaces in our sort of sociological work there's a, there's an enormous amount of expertise that is uh, present in this in this country and so to have that kind of diverted towards or to have all so many resources diverted towards other other areas is is a devastating blow i suppose for those of those of us who've made our careers in um in these spaces do you have any sense of the of the collective impact on uh, i suppose you would from your conversation article but the i guess the the sense of the morale and the feelings about the academy that have um whether that's changed at all through your looking at this at this problem I mean, my, my sense is that, I mean, especially in the humanities, there's a sense of being under siege at the moment mm-hmm. in terms of how um, the infrastructure of research and teaching is being funded. I mean, there's still a huge amount of student interest. You know, I teach undergrads, I teach first years, um, mm-hmm. but I here in Canberra, and the student the student engagement with the humanities and with literary studies is extremely high and strong, despite the fact that those courses are now more expensive to study, mm-hmm. and many of them in the humanities. Um, so I think there's a bit of a disjunct there between student interest and and then the funding of the infrastructure. So there is a sense of, um, I think there is a bit of a sense of being under fire in the humanities and, and, a, and there's, a, there's a real issue with burnout, um, with basically um, there's, not, there's not enough staff in the discipline in many institutions really to undertake the core work of teaching and research that they're, they're supposed to do. So there's a, lot of, uh, there's a lot of academics in Australia, especially in literary studies, who are extremely under the pump. Um, I think there are real issues around um, what, what's going to happen to this body of knowledge as people are retiring or retiring early because they're so burnt out and um, they're not being replaced um, in literary studies across the country. So I think, and there are all these amazing PhDs. There are so many brilliant PhD students who recently graduated or about to graduate, and there are so few jobs for them in the field. So I do feel like there's a situation where we're about to have a bit of a, a massive loss of this of this incredible knowledge of our, of our literary culture. So I think it's something that we should all be really worried about. And that connection between study and society is something that I think you do such a great job at drawing that link and that connection in your article. And you've talked about literature as being part of leisure, as part of our social connections and part of our inner lives. It's a bit of a a philosophical question and maybe a little bit too philosophical on a Monday morning, but (laughs) how how enriching do you think, Julianne Lamont, the study of literature is at that individual and community level? I think it's incredibly powerful. I mean, I see it every day in my work as a teacher. I mean, it really does. Um, it challenges you, especially when you're reading with others. So whether it's in a classroom or in a book club, you'll sit there and you have your own life experiences of your very different places that you're coming from and you're reading the same book and you see how differently um, it, it appears to all of you and to be able to talk about that and to think about, to, to encounter difference in that way and to be able to accommodate it and, dis- and learn how to disagree, I think it's incredibly powerful. Um, I think literature is one of the ways where that we, um, we test out different versions of ourselves we think about the the wider world um, and we we see different ways of living and we think about how we fit into that broader landscape and I think I mean if you're going to be proud of anything as an Australian I think um, contemporary Australian literature is incredibly um, diverse and and amazing at the moment I mean if you think about the range of uh, writers that we have working across across all the genres and especially the indigenous writing that's happening in Australia at the moment the First Nations writing I mean it's, it's just absolutely brilliant body of writing that that does really change 
students, my students' lives when they read this work, regardless of where they come from. They either see themselves recognised or they see something they hadn't seen before. So I think, I mean, I just don't think you can underestimate it, really. <laughs> you underestimate it, yeah. <laughs> and it is summer at the moment, which is a prime time for reading for, for many Australians. What's on the go for you at the moment, Julianne? <laughs> Oh, I've just read Michelle de Kretz's amazing new novel, Scary Monsters. Uh, it's brilliant. So it's a novel that's published. It's actually a, a flip novel. So it's published as two halves and you have to flip the novel over and you can choose which half, um, which half you read first. Uh, and it's, uh, one of them is a, it's a futuristic novel and also a novel about um, a young woman travelling. And so it's about immigration um, and it's about, um, it's about misogyny, but it's also a beautiful coming-of-age novel as well as a kind of quite scary dystopian novel. So it's really interesting and fun. So I just read that um, and found it really fantastic. That sounds like an excellent recommendation. Julian. thanks so much for talking us through these developments on the show. Really appreciate your thoughts and insights and analysis today. Oh, my absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. And we'll put an article to Julianne's, um, not an article, we'll put a link to the article uh, on the 3CR website. So if people are wanting to engage and connect with um, what Julianne's written and some of the debate and discussion around ARC changes and what it means for the study of literature, that'll be online on 3cr.org.au. Oh, summer reading. It's a pretty, pretty lovely thought, isn't it, Caitlin? Absolutely. It's one of my favourite parts of the summer break. I just, it's actually interesting that Julianne mentioned uh, Scary Monsters because that's on my bookshelf. It's one of the one of the books I'm going to read, hopefully, um, before I finish my PhD. But the, <laughs> I, while we were on a break, I read a book called The Women of Little Lon okay. by a historian whose name escapes me at the moment, but it's a history of the uh, – it's a look at the the sex work industry in Melbourne in the 19th century. And it's a really, really fascinating read. So I, I highly recommend The Women of Little Lon. Oh, excellent. That sounds like a, a really good one and one that will, yeah, I suppose bring people's attention to part of the community that often gets overlooked. That's exactly it. It's a, it's a, it's a look at the the – the whole the whole structure of the of sex work in Melbourne in the late nineteenth century or mid to late nineteenth century and into the twentieth century, and it sort of shows that you know it really does sort of challenge the assumptions I think that a lot of people have about sex workers and about the community that for, that people uh, form when they're in these kinds of industries that are under so much threat. It's a really fascinating book and I, I highly recommend everybody well not everybody if you don't if that doesn't sound like a cup of tea, that's fine. But if you if you're interested, definitely check it out. Oh, absolutely excellent. That is such a, a good feeling. It's such a warm feeling and heartening feeling, the idea of reading as many books and devouring as many books as you can on, over summer if you do get that chance. And for me, that feels a lot like happy days. This is Corey Henry and the Funk Apostles. Whoa.
are on 3CR. You're listening to Monday Breakfast with Caitlin and Evan. That was Happy Days by Corey Henry and the Funk. Was it the Funk Apostles? Funk Apostles. Apostles. Yeah. Oh, there's an L missing on my spreadsheet. I can't. <laughs> that would be an Evan typo. That's absolutely <laughs> fine. Anything else. <laughs> <laughs> and then, so before Happy Days, we were talking to Julianne Lamond from ANU the Australian National University, about changes to ARC funding. So now we are talking to Sarah McLean, an Associate Professor at La Trobe University. Evan, what are we going to be talking to Sarah about? Well, January can be a time of extremes. On one hand, people use this time as a chance to launch into health-based New Year's resolutions. And on the other, it can be a pretty boozy time with beers and bubbles and spirit-shaping long and lazy days. For teenagers, it seems as though more and more young people will be steering away from the booze over this summer, as research indicates a significant decline in teenage drinking amongst, well, amongst our adolescents. We're joined by Sarah McLean, Associate Professor from La Trobe University. She's working in social work and social policy. She's also part of the Centre for Alcohol Policy Research. Sarah, good to have you there. Hey, Evan. Hey, Caitlin. Um, How's the summer kicked off for you so far, Sarah? Oh, it looks fairly quietly. I think probably the same for most people. Um, I'm kind of hiding away a little bit, but not totally. Um, COVID's everywhere, so it's it's not quite what we imagined. But anyway, that's what it is. It is a definitely altered period of time compared to how we would normally associate summer. So let's start big picture. Um, in an article in the European Journal of Public Health, past month drinking for Australian teenagers fell from 49% in 1997 to 27% in 2017. And that number from all that we understand is continuing to fall. Throughout your career, you've paid close attention to trends in drinking, and this seems like a, a really important and significant change that's happening in the community. Yeah, well, what's really fascinating about this is it's not just happening in Australia, but in a whole lot of different high-income countries. So we're seeing it in English-speaking countries like uh, the UK and the, in the North America, Canada and the US, uh, also particularly in Northern, Amer- in, sorry, Northern European countries, in the Scandinavian countries. So it looks like what's happening is to do potentially with broad cultural shifts rather than just things that are specifically happening in the countries where we're seeing these significant and kind of quite sustained reductions in young people's drinking. That is um, a, yeah, it's so, a big, so big we're shift. Really fa- Sorry, I just talked over you there. <laughs> That's okay. You know, it's a, it's, a, it's a big shift. Do Do continue, Sarah. Yeah, so we were really interested in um, in, look, in trying to understand um, some of the some of the reasons why this might be happening, uh, and there are a lot of really fascinating um, epidemiological or statistical studies that look at these declines and how they were timed alongside different policy mechanisms. Um, but the um, work that I think you've um, asked me in here to talk about today was looking at interview-based studies with young people in a range of different countries about their drinking and about the place of alcohol in their lives. And we were really interested to find some quite broad similarities in across the countries, across the UK, the Nordic countries and Australia, in terms of uh, how young people talk about more moderate styles of drinking and really the changing acceptability of not drinking a lot. So so what are some of those significant shifts in terms of that language and that narrative around drinking and how those conversations are being framed? 
Yeah, sure. Look, so the young people that we spoke with talked a lot about four different things that we think might be driving some of these reductions across countries, including Australia. So the first of these is that young people are feeling an awful lot of uncertainty and worry about the future. Things seem really, um, and particularly now with the pandemic, but it's very hard to predict what's going to happen. Youth researchers have tracked really significant changes in in young people's lives over a a generation or so where pathways to to careers are, you know, uncertain. Um, The housing market is completely terrifying and climate change is something that's, you know, really, really existentially um, a threat to young people's lives. So there's enormous uncertainty and young people just don't feel like they've got the capacity to um, to, to, to muck up and potentially have employers see them drunk on, online on their Facebook page down the track. Um, secondly, young people are really concerned about the, their health. There's a lot of emphasis on wellness that um, young people are talking about now and it's become like... Um, it's almost become an obligation for young people to care about their health and to practice healthy kinds of behaviours. So a concern about wellness and health is really is quite prevalent and, and not drinking because of issues of health or concern about health is, is, is much, it seems to be much more acceptable than it was a generation ago. That's a fascinating one. On, on health, your article yeah. draws attention to binge drinking and it being not seen as though it's all that cool anymore. And so thinking about those attitudes towards health and healthy living and, and wellness, it um, appears to be a bit of a connection there. Oh, look, absolutely. And I just also want to emphasise, like, this is broad trends. This is not everybody. So we're talking averages, declining declining drinking across the population of young people rather than necessarily everybody declining their drinking. And there's been a UK study recently that suggests that perhaps the very heaviest drinkers haven't declined very much and the very lightest drinkers, which makes more sense because there's not much room for them to move. Um, but across the population is, is where this um, this change has really happened. But yes, certainly um, people in uh, research, Gabriel Kaluzzi has just completed in Australia. Young people talked a lot about... Um, how they were worried about their mental health and they didn't want alcohol or drinking too much to um, to interfere with that or they're wanting, worrying about their sporting capacity, all kinds of reasons that, that um, health has become really... Imp- all, all kinds of ways in which health has become really important and talking about health is, is become more commonplace, we think, among young people. And um, on, on the theme of those conversations, that's another thing mm-hmm. that you uh, really bring attention to in your article, and that is how mm, perhaps changed ways in which parents will talk with their children or talk with their teenagers about drinking or about life in general as being a, a critical factor in potentially shaping approaches to drinking as well. Yeah, look, I think so. The, the other two things that we identified across the countries were also changes to technology and leisure. Um and shifting relationships with parents. So there is also some, um, you know, it's very hard when you talk to a set of people at one time to to prove that things have changed. But when we compare it with research that was conducted in, say, the 90s, um, there does seem to be less emphasis on that determined drinking. And some of that seems to be related to, to the family settings that young people live in now with more open discussions about alcohol. And there is some evidence... Um, from the, the more quantitative studies that that rule setting by parents and monitoring of where young people are and not supplying alcohol at home all seem to be associated with declining drinking in young people. 
Um, so the other thing that, that we identified was also the you know ubiquity of social media in young people's lives now. So that that also means that they're concerned that things might be put on the record that they can't erase, like images of them really drunk that future employees or their family might see. Um, and there's also a lot of, of options that young people have nowadays that don't necessarily involve drinking, like gaming. Uh, gaming at home in front of a computer, people are less likely to drink if they're if they're gaming alone at home. Um, if they're um, certainly over the COVID time, we saw a really huge. We did see an even further reduction in drinking by young people because basically young people don't want to get really drunk around their family, which which is you know totally understandable. I think that's very very understandable. There'd be a lot of teenagers who would um, yeah feel fairly awful or embarrassed or uncertain so. about that. So if I put yeah. myself in the shoes of uh, of teenagers out there, um, just bigger picture question. Um, we know that there is a continued effort and need to um, engage with young people on attitudes towards drinking and that need to continue to to shape and uh, have an active conversation around what does healthy drinking look like in the community. What would you like to be seen done um, by federal or state governments in shaping those attitudes and and helping to, to lead those conversations? That's a really great question and it's a really complicated one to answer too because it's hard to get evidence on how effective education campaigns are. Um, interestingly, in Iceland, which saw a particularly high drop in adolescent drinking, they had a, a really long 18-year um, community intervention program where they offered young people other things to do, um, organised activities such as sports. So it was really diversion rather than trying to educate them, giving them other things that they could spend their time doing. And that Iceland around that period did see quite a, a marked drop. So it, it does seem like there's a role for programs and Vic Health has done some fantastic work in Victoria in encouraging and developing a whole range of community-based programs that have been targeted at changing alcohol cultures. Uh, and I think that's really, really important work. And having these discussions with young people are really is really important as well to talk about alcohol and to talk about the. the I think young people are also quite really interested in the um, critiques of the alcohol industry and how it, how the alcohol industry will move into online spaces and market their products really aggressively. I think having those conversations with young people is a really important thing. Um, both at a, from government or through campaigns, but also um, parents and, and other people around adolescents. Um, but I do want to say also that the, the the most effective way of changing cultures or changing drinking does seem to be about restricting about taxation, so making alcohol more expensive, and restricting supply. And sometimes I wonder whether those cultural ideas follow. Um, follow strong legislation like we really saw that with the drink driving campaigns that um, though that really strong legislative approach has led to a very broad change in the Australian community where drink driving is now looked on you know really negatively Sarah, so all these things need to happen in tandem absolutely they, they they do indeed having that coordinated policy approach and response we're running very close to the end of our show so I'm going to have to leave it there Sarah thank you so much for chatting with us on 3CR Monday Breakfast Thanks, Pete Seven. Thank Bye. you. And looking forward to having Sarah on the show, perhaps a number of months' time, and have a bit more of an in-depth conversation about some of those underlying themes and policy changes. Caitlin, it's been a pretty good morning. It's been a jam-packed morning, Evan. Thanks so much <laughs> for being here and for making it happen.
Oh, absolute pleasure. And thank you to everyone for tuning in. Um, if you've missed any of the show, you've just tuned in later in the morning. It's all up on the website, 3cr.org.au or on your favorite podcast platform. Um, there'll be links to all of the different interviews that we've had today and looking forward to catching you next week on 3CR. Stay tuned for Women on the Line. to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.